Okay, good morning everyone. Boker Tov. I want to thank our sponsors this morning, our sponsors for the series for the whole year, Becky and Avi Katz, in memory of David Grossman, Becky's father, Lila Nishmas, David Menachem, Monash. Also today's sponsor, Mrs. Golda Sadowski, in honor of her dear uncle and aunt, Rabbi Dr. Ed and Doris Kurtzer. Continue to be very grateful to Mrs. Sadowski for her generosity. Thank you. I hope everyone had a chance on the way in or on the way out to stop at the new BRS Cafe, the Coffee Ark. You should know that a portion of anything you buy there, latte, cappuccino, coffee, Danish fruit, goes to support Tomchei Shabbos. So, caffeine for caring. Caffeine goreres mitzvah. Mitzvah goreres, coffee goreres mitzvah. This week we have the privilege of studying Parshas Vayishlach together. And now it's the uh, fateful moment that Yaakov and Esau are going to have the reunion, the attempted reconciliation to come back together and to figure out where their relationship stands. So Yaakov, before he approaches his brother, before he attempts to reconcile, sends ahead of him, Malachim the Pasuk describes, angels, in order to be able to encounter him, in order to be able to find him, in order to be able to see him. What does it mean that he sent angels? The simple understanding is he sent ambassadors, he sent emissaries. If you're going to try diplomacy, you send an advanced team that go and to feel out the situation. Is it ripe for an opportunity for reconciliation? Is there still tension and hostility? The Yaakov sent Malachim Lafanov, he sent Malachim in advance. We've shared in the past, we won't review it right now, but we find throughout Sefer Bracious this notion of the Malachim. Prominently last week's parasha, which we've moved past, but the Malachim going up and coming down when it really should have been the opposite order, coming down and going up. That's one. We see Malachim here, Yaakov sends Malachim, and we see that Yosef will encounter a Malach when he's looking for his brothers, and he encounters uh, a Malach who tells them where they are. And in each of these locations and others, Rashid, Ibn Ezra, have a consistent Machlokas. Are we talking about Malachim angels? Malachim Mamish, angels? Or are we talking about people who are calling angels? a consistent machlokas throughout. And we've argued in the past that maybe the Ibn Ezra standpoint and a critically important perspective on not only these parshios, but on life is to realize that angels are not created in heaven. Angels are created where? Right here on earth. And how are angels created right here on earth? By who we are and how we conduct ourselves by being of service to others. We are here to be angels for other people. We are your guardian angels. We are supposed to protect and take care and express concern and be devoted to one another and to be the angels for one another. And perhaps you can understand that's why in last week's parsha the malachim go up and come down. They originate where? Here on earth. Even though Rashi's bothered, it's the wrong order. Because maybe if we understand that angels are not supposed to come from up in heaven. But angels, what is an angel? An angel is the ambassador and expression of Hashem in this world the fulfillment of God's will in this world. That's what an angel is. It's a midah of Hashem in this world. So if we understand the angels are not created in heaven, but we have a mission here on earth to be the angels for one another. So you have that consistent machlokas here also. Yaakov sends angels in advance. Did he send, did he have access? Angels, as in angels, I don't know, with big wings and whatever, those angels, they respond to Yaakov's command. He said, go ahead, go meet my brother. Tell me what you find. So again, Rashi says, Malachim Mamish. But I want to share with you a Hasidish insight. The Tzadik Rav Meir of Parmishalan says, Rashi Pshat means the following. 
The Mishnah in the fourth chapter of Pirkei Avos says, Ha'osa mitzvah achas, kono lo praklet echad. Person does one mitzvah, there is an angel that is created that corresponds with the mitzvah that you did. Which is exactly the theme that we've been talking about. You do a kind deed, you care about someone else, you extend yourself. You came on time to shul, you didn't talk, you had concentration, you daven for people other than yourself. You thought of someone and checked in on them, you did a mitzvah, a chesed, you were honest and had integrity in business, you were kind and courteous at the supermarket, you were careful with kashras and Shabbos and making brachos. Every mitzvah we do, we form, we mold, we create a new angel here on earth, which means we introduce an energy that reflects the positive thing that we've done. There is physics and there's metaphysics in this world, and we operate in both of those planes simultaneously. And the world of physics is studied and it's documented and it's researched, and we have scientists. But the world of ruchnis, of spirituality, is that world of metaphysics. And just like in the world of physics, every action has a reaction. Just like in the world of physics, we have laws of thermodynamics and we have entropy and we have all kinds. I, that's the extent of my knowledge. I just gave it all to you right there. Maybe I could, th I could throw an E equals MC squared. Now you have it all, my whole knowledge of physics. But just like in the world of physics, we, we observe the universe and we observe physical realities in it and phenomenon in it and we understand that reaction as a reaction in the physical world, so too in the metaphysical world, the world of Ruchnius, every action is a reaction. And so too there are rules and there are formulas. And those who are plugged in and tuned in are able to observe and see the phenomena of the metaphysical universe. The more we identify as physical beings, the less access and contact we have with the metaphysical universe. And the less we feel rooted and defined by the physical world, and the more that we live in and operate according to the rules of the metaphysical universe, then we are members of the metaphysical citizenship and community, and we live and feel and operate in that world. So the Mishnah Perkyava says every mitzvah that we do, every action has a reaction, just like there are physical realities, there are metaphysical realities. We have created, we've promoted, we've introduced an energy into this world, a positive energy into this world. You do one mitzvah, and you introduce that energy into this world. So what does it mean, maybe, says the Tzaddik of Mer Pishlan, that Yaakov sent angels ahead to Esav? It means that Yaakov's mitzvos, his reputation, preceded him. And maybe that's what he suggests, the words Malachim Mamish. Malachim Mamish Mamish is Rashi Tevos. Malachim Mi Mitzvos Sha'asa. The angels of the mitzvos that he did. As Esav is approaching Yaakov, you can picture it in your mind's eye, this reconciliation, it'd make an incredible drama, the story of how it all unfolded. Yitzchak, who was betting on Esav, and Rivka, who was betting on Yaakov, and Yaakov in the last minute proves worthy and that he's able to operate and that he's able to be worthy of his father's uh, designation to designate him to continue the legacy. But then Yaakov has to run for his life and now it's years later and they've both built families and amassed fortunes and they're about to reunite and you can feel the suspense in the air. But before they do, Yaakov sends ahead. What it means is, what we, are, we are only as good as our reputation. Tov Shem Mishem and Tov. A good name precedes us. So that's the pshat he's offering. It's not the pshat at all, but it's the drash that he's offering. Is that Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim Lefanav. We always send Malachim before us. Everywhere we go. We're moving to a new community, we're going on vacation, we have a new business meeting or opportunity. What, whatever the case is, wherever we go and whatever we do, we send malachim ahead of us. Those malachim are our actions, our reputation. 
what we've chosen, who we are, and the behavior that we've shown. Our reputation precedes us. We use that expression in a flattering way. Your reputation precedes you. But sometimes it doesn't always have to be flattering. Your reputation precedes you that you are a low-life, miserable, negative, self-centered, narcissistic Eisvarf. Your reputation precedes you. All of our reputations precede us for good and for bad. And that's what he says is the pshat in the word mamish. Rashi malachim mamish. Mamish means malachim mimitzvos sha'asa. The energy, the sparks that we bring into the world from the choices we've made. Some people are toxic. They bring a negative energy. You walk into a room and you can feel, you can become contaminated from their negative energy. Everything is a criticism and everything's wrong and everything's pessimistic and everything is hopeless and everything is negative. And I don't know about you, I'm allergic to such people. I'm allergic. I break out in hives to be in a room or to be around such people. I thrive. I need positive energy. I need the, I need the mamish, the malacha mi mitzvah sha'asa. I need the positive energy of a hope and optimism and a positive spirit and faith in Hashem and everything's going to be good and a smile. We introduce energy into the universe and the energy that we spend our lives introducing, it precedes us where we go. And in Yaakov's case, that was an asset that worked to his advantage because the energies that he had introduced, these mitzvahs, preceded him before he came to his brother, before he came to his brother Asaph. Okay. We've been, I've noticed in these last few weeks, we struggle because I have so much to say at the beginning of the parsha. we never get to the middle of the end of the parsha. So we're going to try to correct that today. Try being the most important, operable word. So, but there is still so much to say here at the beginning. In love on Garti, we know that Yaakov tells him, the message to Esav is, here's the message. Here's the energy, Esav, I want you to know. Here's the reputation that I want to precede me. Namely, in love on Garti, you know where I've been until now? I've been preoccupied. I've been living with... I've been living with Lavan. I've been living with Lavan. And that's what took me a long time. And that's what took me time to be able to get here. And Rashi quotes the famous comment that we all know. Im Lavan Garti says uh, Rashi. You know that when you need the glasses, it's a bad sign. When you can't find them, it's an even worse sign. You can't remember where you left them. It's really happening quickly. Anyway, so uh, Rashi says in Lavangarti, Lo nasesi sar v'chashav el ager, Eincha g'day l'snosi abircha sadicha shebechani, Hevegvir la'achecha, Shari lo naskayma bi. You should know I was living with Lavan. Lest you think that those brachas that I stole, the brachas that bestowed upon me the prediction, the blessing, that I was going to rise to a position of prominence and power and distinction, I've been basically a pathetic worker with Lavan, being fooled and tricked and having to navigate the scoundrel. So lest you think that I have experienced the fulfillment of that bracha I stole, says Rashi, in Lavan Garti, You know where I've been? I've been working my tail off and I've been deceived and lied to and manipulated. And that's where I've been. But then Rashi quotes a second opinion, Dovar Acher, Garti begamatria taryag, klom mariam Lavan arasha garti v'tarig mitzvah shamayati v'lalamadzi masavarayim. One of the Rashi Gematrias. Garti is the same Gematria as 613. You know where I've been? I've been living in the house of a Russia. And let me tell you, Esav, you don't intimidate me. You don't intimidate me in the least. Because you should know where I was living and you should know who I survived and you need to know where I escaped. And if Lavan didn't scare me and if Lavan didn't have an impact on me and if Lavan didn't cause me to compromise, Esav, 
bring it on. I only learned a couple years ago a story of my grandmother, Allah Shalom, was here, it was just this past week, who was maybe four feet tall, a tiny little woman who ran from the Nazis after Kristallnacht, after they destroyed the store of, uh, of her and my grandfather. And my cousin, who's older than I, was once with her, where they lived uh, in, in Bayonne at the time, or Jersey City, I don't remember which one, I think Bayonne. And they were walking in the street, and this goes back many, many decades, and they encountered a member of the Black Panthers who tried to intimidate my grandmother and stood in her path and in her way. And she looked up at him, all four feet tall, and she said, I survived the Germans and the Nazis, you don't scare me, and pushed him out of the way. <laughs> and he didn't know what to do with this little Jewish woman. Because this whole world was operating from intimidation. So Yaakov says, listen Esav, im lovam garti, v'tayag mitzvah you don't scare me. There's nothing about you that scares me. And we all know a beautiful, a beautiful gematria. I'm not going to answer, but I'll give you a question. What did Yaakov mean, Taryak mitzvah shalati? Forget the fact that the Torah wasn't given, because we know we have a tradition that the Avos and Imos volunteered to observe the totality of Torah even before it was given. But among the Taryak mitzvahs are mitzvahs that don't apply universally to everyone. There is no Jew who can keep all 613 mitzvahs, not because they're neglectful of Hashem's mitzvahs, but because you can't be a Kohen Levi and Yisrael, a man and a woman, the Kohen Gadol, mitzvahs atzliyus ba'aretz. There's a lot of mitzvahs that rely on certain variables that you can't be all, and you can't be all simultaneously. So it's a cute gematria, in love and garti, garti is taryag, but Yaakov could not have lived taryag, he was living outside of Israel. What happened to mitzvahs atzliyus ba'aretz? the mitzvahs that depend on the land, why did he represent himself as having lived and observed, even in Lava's home, all Tariq mitzvahs? That is homework and food for you to think about. But I want to bring to your attention the comment of Rabbi Soloveitchik before we move on. Rabbi Soloveitchik points out, he's not the only one, there's many others, Hasidah Shetzvarim also point this out, that note the Pasuk says, Im lavan garti, it does not say, Im lavan yashafti. What's the difference between garti and yashafti? Yashafti, I would have thought, would be much more appropriate. In fact, how long was Yaakov with Lavan? For no less than 20 years. 20 years. I'm now in Boca for 20 years. It's a lifetime. It's forever. What, what would I say? The Boca guard? Oh yeah, I passed through Boca. I passed through Boca. People become emeritus for less than 20 years. So you just guard thee, that's just passing through? That's Yashafti. I lived, Yashafti, 20 years? You dwelled, you were a citizen, you lived, you were a resident. So why doesn't it say in love on Yashafti? Why does it say in love on Garti? So Basalovich many others developed the notion that where we are a citizen of is as much our mentality and attitude as it is our geographic location. Whether you are a visitor or a resident, whether you're, whether you're passing through or you see yourself as permanently there is as much about our mentality and attitude as it is about what address is on our driver's license. And what's critically important to understand here is that Yaakov was sending this message to Esav, Im lavan garti, not yashafti. Yes, I was there 20 years, but you need to know that while I extracted and took the best of what that world had to offer, I never was permanently entrenched. I was never permanently integrated or assimilated into that world. Garti, it's reminiscent of the language that Avram Avinu uses when he purchases Maras HaMachpelah from Ephron Achiti, he says, and when they say, who are you? What do you want to buy? What are you doing here? How can we help you? And Avram says, how can I identify myself? Let me introduce myself. You know who I am? Ger v'toshev anochi imachem. 
I am that balance, that tension. I am simultaneously a ger and simultaneously a toshav. I am a stranger and a resident among you. On the one hand, I'm a loyal citizen. I have no dual loyalty. And you won't challenge me with some anti-Semitic accusation that I'm not loyal. On the one hand, toshav, I'm a toshav. I pay my taxes. I'm a citizen. I'm legal. I vote. Many have fought on the front lines. Jews have given their lives for the countries they've lived in. I am a toshav. But says Avram, at the same time, I know I'm a ger. I'm an outsider. I'm a stranger. Whatever is popular, whatever are the ethics or ethos, whatever the morales or mores of your time are not necessarily mine. I enter to a higher and a different calling. And therefore, ger v'toshem anochi machem, the Jew, wherever we live, has to find the ability to simultaneously be that ger and toshav. To be a loyal resident, to be a contributing resident, to be extracting the best of the host country, whatever it has to offer, but to never become assimilated or fully integrated, to understand we are a ger, that we are forever an outsider. And Yaakov is doing this where? This is what the Rav writes. He should have said in love and yashavti, but he said garti. He felt a stranger in Haran, the way his son Yosef later felt a stranger in Egypt. He had not assimilated, he had not integrated himself into love and society and community. He had not accepted their morals, their code of ethics or lifestyle. He sojourned in Haran for a long time, yet he preserved his moral religious identity. His commitment to the God of Avram, his commitment to the way of life that Hashem of Avram sanctioned, his commitment to the Promised Land, all those commitments and many more were not affected at all. Yaakov was as dedicated at the end of his 20 years of servitude in Lovin's house as he was that first night he spent on the cold stones of Beit El when he pledged, the Lord will be my God. At the completion of his sojourn in Haran, the angel of Hashem reveals himself to Yaakov. In other words, you remained loyal to your spiritual heritage and your faith in me. And Yosef becomes burdened with the same task. He had to prove that Avram's covenant could be practiced outside the promised land, that the moral laws are not contingent upon geography and chronology. The difference between Yaakov and Yosef's assignments is a dual one. Yaakov had to prove the Torah is realizable in poverty and oppression, that the immigrant, no matter how hard he has to work for a livelihood, no matter how poor and oppressed is capable, if he makes up his mind to give devotion and loyalty to his ancestral tradition, Yosef's mission was to demonstrate that enormous success and limited riches, admiration, prominence, and power are not in conflict with a sainty covenantal life. The immigrant, no matter what his destiny turns out to be, glorious success or miserable failure, can, if he possesses the heroic quality of either Yaakov or Yosef, attend to his commitment. I think we spoke about this last week, so I'll move on, last year, but I'll move on, is that Yaakov and Yosef are two paradigms of the Jew in exile needing to remain true to their past. Yaakov does it from the position of poverty and indigence and, and, and needing desperately the help of others, reliance, and Yosef does it from the position of power and wealth. And both of them, whether from a position of power and wealth or from the position of, of poverty and need, neither forfeits or gives up their misora, their background, their tradition, what they stand for, what we stand for. This is a theme that is pervasive throughout Sefer Bereshis. Such a critically, critically important theme. We spoke about it, about Yitzchak looked like Avram, and the Rav's interpretation, it doesn't only mean in his appearance, but it meant that the scoffers and the cynics, the late Sanei Ador said, your son will never embrace your archaic, crazy ways. They won't be relevant. And Avram said, you'll be proven wrong. You'll see. We'll study the same text, and we'll speak about the same Tanaim and Amoraim, and we'll observe the same Shulchan Aruch, and Judaism is timeless, and Torah's messages and values are timeless. But my friends, why am I repeating this this year? Because this is under assault in our time. We are living in an age where we have religious freedom and opportunity and yeshivas and kolam and midrashos and 
countless ways to be learning Torah and observing halacha and mitzvahs with a greater ease than we ever had. And yet, and yet, today is Tuesday and I've had two meetings this week. Two meetings this week where literally the people leave and I close my door and I cry because there are children who've gone through not 12 years of Jewish education to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars if not reaching almost seven figures. But I'm talking also about Jewish university afterwards. And yet, at the end of it all, coming from good from homes with wonderful parents, a vibrant Jewish life are walking away. Walking away and not looking back. Walking away and not becoming more lax or more lenient. Walking away and saying, I don't need to be Jewish or want to be Jewish. I don't care if my children are not Jewish. I don't believe in Judaism. I don't believe in how incompatible it is with my worldview, with the current worldview. And so the pendulum has swung in a long, for a long time towards being a Toshav, that we fit in and we belong and we can participate. And maybe we need this pendulum to swing back in the other direction to remind ourselves and our children of how we are gay, we're visitors, and how much we remain outsiders and how our values have to be different. It's very, very complicated and it's absolutely heartbreaking what's happening. It's heartbreaking what's happening. The gates are wide open and we're living in a world that's inviting anyone who wants to walk through and to forget where they come from and to assimilate and integrate and to drop the gear and just be a Toshav and to not be in love on Garti but in love on Yashavti and to forget where we come from and to not care about where we're going. And it is devastating, devastatingly sad. It is the crisis of our time. It is the crisis of our time and I know it's not being entirely neglected but it's not what we're hearing about. It's criticism of the right and criticism of the left and these policies and those policies and these are important issues and I'm not blaming anyone who's tackling them, but while we're looking in every direction around us, we need to be looking inside of us and asking ourselves what needs to change and change radically and quickly to respond to the new world in which we're living, the open, inviting world in which we're living, in which too many, too many, from all the segments of the observant community are choosing to walk away to a world which is welcoming and celebrating their, their joining. Yaakov is very hesitant. He's worried about this reunion with, with uh, Esav. And we know that this section, the beginning of Parshas Vayishlach, is a very, very significant Parsha. In fact, the Mishnah tells us that when Rabbi Yudha Nasi, oops, sorry, when Rabbi Yudha Nasi, the great editor, redactor of the Mishnah, who had a very personal, close relationship with the oppressive Roman government of his time, when he would meet with them, when he would travel to Washington, and he'd have to, his Washington, and he'd have a meeting to lobby and to advocate, no matter what Parsha they were up to, the, uh, that Shabbos in Shul, he would read Parshas Vayishlach in order to prepare. Time to go to DC, time to go to Washington. Anytime you head to Washington, you're landing in Reagan National Airport, you better on the plane be reading Parshas Vayishlach. Because our tradition is, the Medrash Breshis Rabbah tells us that the Torah's dramatic description of this highly anticipated confrontation, Yaakov and Esav, was not a one-time event. It's not a piece of history, but it contains the divine message for geopolitical encounters on behalf of the Jewish people for all time. So much so that years later, fast forward, Rabbi Danasi is engaging the Roman government. He's first reading Parshas Vayishlach. And I'll tell you another fascinating historical footnote. That when the Prime Minister Menachem Begin prepared for a critical meeting with Sadat and Carter, before he went to Washington, he stopped in New York. And why did he stop in New York? Because there we know, before that fateful meeting with Carter and Sadat, he went to go meet with three of the greatest rabbis of the generation. Rav Moshe Feinstein, Lubavitcher Rebbe, and the Rav. And it's been reported that all three of them gave, gave Begin the same advice. 
Before you walk into that Oval Office for that meeting, you have to read Parshas Vayeshlach, which is not a surprise. All three, of course, knew the Medrash, and they understood the significance of the opening of our Parsha to shed light, to inspire, to empower these uh, types of encounters in our time. So the Parsha contains this threefold strategy that Yaakov engages when he's about to encounter Esau. Number one is diplomacy. Number two is prepare for war. And number three, importantly, is daven, pray. And the Svastamas has a beautiful comment. He says, this formula is true not only on the geopolitical plane, when there are broad national issues and encounters uh, that need to be navigated, but it's true when we too are meeting our alter ego. In the effort and the war that we wage against our own Sahara, we need to employ these same three levels or forms of diplomacy. Torah tells us, and the Svassama says, where do you see this? You see this also in Shema. Love Hashem. To love Hashem, you have to defeat the impediments or the obstacles, the temptations that are going to draw us away and distract us from fully loving Hashem and realizing our best version of ourselves and fulfilling His expectations and mission for us. So it says the Svassamas, with all your heart is a reference to Avodah Shebelev. It means Davin. For help. all your heart, It means with all your heart means genuinely, authentically be present when you're davening. Be thinking. Daven for help and courage and resolve to do the right thing and be the right person. with all your soul means even in battle, even if it costs you your life. Daven to Hashem that you're giving your life, you're willing to sacrifice. And with all your resources means diplomacy giving a gift, give what's necessary to refine your inclination in order to be able to do the good in our, in our lives. When Yaakov prepares to meet Esav, he's very worried about his brother's duplicity. The Pasuk says, Yaakov says, Hashem, save me from my brother, save me from Esav. Did Yaakov think that Hashem forgot who his brother was? Save me from my brother, you know, save me from Esav. It's repetitive, it's redundant. Why does he say it in that way? Commentators are bothered. So the Beis Alevi suggests that Yaakov knew that his brother could put on many faces, display multiple personalities. So he said to the Rebbe Shalom, he said, Almighty, help me, strengthen me, give me the resolve, and enable me to overcome whichever version of my brother I will meet. Esav could be Achi, and Esav could be Esav. Esav Achi means he'll present himself as my brother. He'll invite me to assimilate in with him to join him, to be just like him. He'll love me with open arms, and that's an enormous threat to me and my family. So Esav may present as Achi as my brother. He also may present as the hostile adversary, the enemy Esav. But either way, Hashem says the Beis HaLevi, whichever one I meet or encounter is a formidable threat and danger, and therefore Hashem, I need your help. Which one is the greater threat, Achi or Esav? Achi is even more of a threat. Why? When you fight your adversary, you know where you stand. You know who you're confronting. You know what needs to be done. But what is particularly pernicious is when your enemy presents himself or herself as your friend. Then your guard is let down. Then you're vulnerable. Then they could do the most damage. And that too is an observation of the world in which we're living. Miyad Achi many who are presenting as our brother, and maybe they even have the best of intention in presenting themselves in that way, but a 70% intermarriage rate 
and an enormous assimilation rate in this country is clearly proving is proving the great uh, the great danger of this. So Yaakov's very afraid. Vayira Yaakov, Yaakov Ma'od, Yaakov is afraid and he's distressed. And that's the Beisal Levi says, the two. Why does it have to say he's afraid and Vayitzelo and he's distressed? So the two correspond with Miyad Miyad Just like, I don't know which Esav I'm going to meet, therefore I don't know how I will react to him. But I'm afraid of both. I'm afraid of both. Each one presents a threat and each one of them I am afraid of. So what does he do? He has to break his camp in two. And some say that's exactly what he was afraid of. Nothing pains Yaakov more than dividing his own family. A house divided, isn't there some famous quote? Cannot stand, will certainly fall. Some version of that. So Yaakov is very afraid. What was he afraid of? So some commentators say Yaakov's not afraid of Esav. You know what he's afraid of? The consequence of what he has to do in order to prepare to meet Esav. So the wise thing he has to do, how do you prepare for war? What did he do? He broke his camp in two, which is very smart. He diversifies. If Esau is successful in attacking and obliterating one segment of my family by dividing in two, he won't be able to touch the other side and we will have survivors. What pained Yaakov more than the fear of approaching Esau is the consequence of dividing his camp in two. To be put in that position where a person has to divide their family in two, it's like before the Holocaust when parents parted from their children, sent their children in order to help save them even though their hope is that they will survive that encounter, and many did survive, but nevertheless, the trauma of separating in order to survive is itself an enormous trauma. That's what bothered Yaakov. Not Esav. Esav, he had faith he could handle. But having to face Esav meant dividing his camp. Dividing his camp was an enormous source of pain, enormous source of stress for, for him. The Pasuk describes that Yaakov, in fact, was nervous. He lacked, I won't say lacked confidence, but he says, Katonti chasadim. He was nervous because of all the chesed that Hashem had done. What pasuk? Paraglamid base pasuk Yud Aleph, page one seventy two. Says Yaakov, Katonti mikola chasadim mikola emasa sheasisa esavdecha. Kivemakli avarti aseradin azeb atayisi l'shnei machanos. A beautiful song by Yonatan Rizel. Recently wrote a beautiful song to these words. Katonti mikola chasadim umikol haemes. Again, I'll give you homework because we don't have time. What's the difference between chasadim and emes? If what Hashem did for you is emes, then it's not chesed. If what He did is chesed, then it wasn't emes. So what does it mean, mikol chasadim or mikol ha-emes? That's your homework. But what is Yaakov saying when he says katonti? I've become diminished. I'm somehow diminished by the kindness and the truth that you've shown me. Now, I understand why you're diminished by kindness because maybe you're unworthy. But how do you diminish by truth? If it's truth, it's justified. If it's truth, it's what's right. So why should you be diminished by Hashem performing truth for you? That doesn't seem to make much sense. Again, that's your homework for you to, to you think about it. But the Orach uh, L'chaim, the Orach L'chaim, Rav Avram Chaim from Zlotchev says the following. Katonti Mikola Chasadim means the following. It means that Hashem does incredible good for us. He gives us capability and He gives us gifts and he gives us talents, and he gives us skills, and he gives us opportunities. If as a result of all of them we are humbled, and we use them to fulfill and advance his mission, then we've used them correctly. But if we become arrogant, if our ego becomes inflated, if we think that we're great because of those talents or skills or gifts or opportunities that we have, 
then we have violated the very purpose for which we have. The Torah cautions us in Sefer Dvarim. Moshe spends a lot of time, he dwells on this, that your heart is going to swell, you're going to become arrogant, your ego will be inflated, and what happens? You'll forget Hashem. I'm successful. It's my brilliance, it's my skill set, the choices that I make. So that's what's going on over here. Katonti mikol hachasadim. He says, if a person If I become arrogant because of all of the uh, wonderful skills and talents and accomplishments and achievements I have, then God says there's not enough room in this world for both me and him. And we fall. We have a great fall. And that's what it means. Yaakov does not in fact feel diminished. And it's not that Yaakov feels he's unworthy. Rashi says that Yaakov is worried, he's used up, he's depleted the whole bank account of Hashem taking care of him. He's in the red, Hashem's not going to take care of him. What's that going to mean for him? That's a very difficult Rashi. Because Yaakov lives with faith. He lives with Amunah and Bitachon and Dveikos. That means that there is, no, there is no bankrupt, there is no empty bank account. You're never in the red with Hashem. You can always trust in Hashem. Betach Hashem. Always put your faith and trust in Hashem. So what does it mean? Yaakov was unsure Hashem would be there for him because maybe he used up all of his favors with Hashem. Very, very difficult Rashi. So the Orach Lachaim suggests very differently that no, Yaakov was advancing a prayer. This was his tefillah. Katonti... Hashem, you've given me all kinds of chesed and emes. You've been good to me. You've given me opportunities. You've given me talents and skills. You've given me blessings. Hashem, you've been so good to me. And you know how I reacted? Is katonti. Instead of my heart swelling, instead of becoming arrogant, I was humble. And because of that, in that merit, So katonti is not Yaakov's fear. It's not Yaakov's expression of anxiety or worry. He suggests it's Yaakov's tefillah, that katonti mikola chasadim mikola emes, because I reacted correctly. My response to the blessings you've given me is not to think I'm greater than I was, but to think less of myself. And because of that, hatsileni in that merit, please, please save me. Please save me. Perak Lamed Beis Pasuk. Yilches, the bottom of page 172. When you encounter my brother Esav, and he will ask you these three questions. What are the three questions he's going to ask? What are the three questions? Lamiata, to whom do you belong? And where are you going? And who are these people before you? What are these, what are these three questions? What are these three questions? So, I saw a beautiful insight. Kiv Gashcha Esav, these are the three ways that the Yetzirah attacks us. It says, Kiv Gashcha Esav, when the Yetzirah comes upon you, and you really want to share that juicy Lashon Hara. You want to look at or watch the thing you shouldn't be looking. You want to cut the corners in business you shouldn't be cutting. You want to bend the rules of Shabbos or Kashos more than you should. When that Yetzirah is aroused within you and it's trying to lead you in the wrong direction, so what should you do? And it says, Achi, Kivkashka Esav, and it says, Achi, hey, my brother, hey, brother, let's watch this together. Hey, brother, let's go there together. Hey, brother, let's say this together. 
So what should you do? Lay more. You know what you say? Remember the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. And the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos tells us that there are three things to remember. The three things to remember that will prevent you from making the wrong choices. And what are they? Where did you come from? And where are you going? And before whom are you going to have to give an accounting? Every time you're tempted to do the wrong thing, just remember, you came from the ground. And you're going back to become worm food in the ground. And when that happens and your soul is extracted from your body and your soul ascends on high, you will appear before the heavenly court and you will have to give an accounting, a reckoning, a din v'cheshbon. So it says, that's the pshat here. Kiv gashcha Esav, when Esav your Sahara comes to attack you, and what's its methodology? It says, achi, hey my brother, lemor, you know what you say back? Miata, me'ayin basa, where are you from? Where are you going? That's how you attack the Yitzhahara by challenging or opposing these three things, and that's how you're able to shut it down. Acute chasidish pshat. Good. Lamet Bez. Yudches, I told you. Oh. Kiare Anochioso. Where's Kiare Anochioso? Kiare Anochioso Penyavo Vihikani. Because I'm worried, Penyavo Vihikani. He was worried, what if he comes and strikes? Pasuk. Yeah, Pasuk Yudbez. Lamed Bez Yudbez. I'm sorry, go backwards. We're going backwards for a moment. Hatzlini Nam Yarachim Yadesav. Save me from my brother from Esav. I'm afraid of him. Maybe he's going to come and destroy me. A mother with her children. A mother with her children. So I want to tell you, two pshatim. Why is he afraid of this? So you knew it wouldn't be long before we took out the Imre Chaim. The Vizhnitzer. The Vizhnitzer Rebbe says the following. He says, I am afraid of Oso. What does that mean, I am afraid of Oso? So listen to the Vishnitzer. You know why I'm afraid of him? Because I was once him. I wore his clothing, and I faked being him, and I walked in his shoes, and I knew what it was like to be him. And that's what I'm afraid of. I had a Nagia. I was once him. And I'm worried that that experience, that taste that I had, that I was once him, that's what might come back. That's how I might feel again. And that's therefore what I'm afraid of. I'm worried I am him. I'm not worried about the Esau that's outside of me. What am I worried about? The Esau that's inside of me. The enemy in the outside, I can, no matter how, many, how formidable I can stand up to. But the Esau in me, I wore his clothing. I walked in his way. I hunted and brought him food, brought my father the food. I was Esav, and that's the fear, is what if, what if I have that in me? The Dega Machin Ephraim is a different shot. He says the following, He says, Is year of is year, the two types of fear are all. Yira chitzonus, the dacha begin ritzua la'aka, v'yira saromamus. We know that we have two types of fear. There's fear of heights and fear of public speaking, and there's fear of the dark, and there's fear of flying, and there's fear, all the fears and anxieties that exist in the world. And then there's Yeras Haromamus. Yeras Haromamus is an awe and a reverence. God is so great. God is so 
distant, so all-capable, so omnipotent, so infinite. If a person merits to get to the level of living with an awe and a fear and a mindfulness that there is a God and He's all-powerful and all-controlling and holds us accountable, as so then you're not going to be afraid of flying or darkness or public speaking or you have no need to have anxiety of anything. If you realize that we defer to Hashem, that He's in charge and He's in control and He runs our lives. We speak about this every morning, Wednesday morning at the Amuna Shir at 845. Every Wednesday morning, Amuna. If we live with Amuna, of a Yiras Haromamus, there's HaKadosh Baruch Hu and He's in my life and I was meant to be stuck at this red light and I was meant for this flight to be delayed and I was meant for that Shirach not to work out and I, was, I have nothing to fear in the world. Because by definition, everything that happens was meant to happen. And everything is happening the way it was supposed to happen. So I have nothing to fear. Because if I get up to speak and I flop, and I fail on my face, that was what was meant for me. And I will have the courage and the strength to be able to endure and persevere. And whatever will happen, I have nothing to be afraid of. If a person has anxiety or fear, then they need the Chazanish writes this explicitly. Chazanishin is an Amun Abitachon, writes explicitly, he says, living with fear, being nervous and anxious, again, not diagnosed anxiety, which needs legitimate treatment. I'm not talking about somebody who has a diagnosed disorder of anxiety or mental health challenge of, of anxiety. I'm talking about just everybody else who has anxiety. Chazanish says, living with anxiety is an act of kfira. You are in denial of Hashem. Because if you're panicking and you're freaking out and you're sweating and your heart is racing and you're nervous of what will be and what will happen and how's it going to work out and I don't know and I'm just so nervous and I can't take it and I can't sleep and I can't anything, Hashem says, hello, over here. I mean, imagine you tell your spouse or you tell your parent or you tell your friend or you tell your child, you got nothing to worry about, come with me, I got your back, I got it covered, it's all good. And then they say, I just can't sleep and I'm just so nervous and I just know what's going to be. I say, hello, hi, do you, do you not trust me? I just told you this. So one of two things, either you don't believe I can do it and that's why you're, that's why you're nervous because you don't, you don't trust in me, you don't believe me. So Kosh Baruch says, do you not believe me? Because if you believe me, then stop panicking because everything by definition, everything by definition is going to work out. So we can replace, this is the story of Rabbi Salavechik, who one year before the Yom Naraim, a prominent psychiatrist said to him, why are we dominating for fear? Fear is debilitating. We should overcome all of our fears. So why are we saying, Hashem, give us greater fear. And the Rav said, no, you don't understand. That's not the fear. There's one major fear that can eliminate all smaller fears. The more a person works on Yerah the less they will have fear of all the little things in life. You can replace all the little fears by working on the one big fear. And he explained the tefillah, so the psychiatrist, the psychologist, you're getting paid to try to heal all the little fears. But really, the bigger way to heal all the little fears is to work on the one big fear. And that's what the Degemach and Ephraim is saying over here as well. That's what Yaakov Avinu says, Ki yoso. I'm afraid. And because I'm afraid and I have some anxiety, now vihikani. Because I have fear, it can hit me. If I didn't have fear of him, nothing could hurt me. Because Hashem, I have you. But if I have the little fear, then the little fear, Taka, can, can make me crazy, can make me anxious, can make me neurotic. It can really rob me of my happiness. So because Kiare Anochi, therefore Penyavovikani. But if it weren't a Yare Anochi, if we were able to overcome our smaller fears with the one bigger fear of the presence of Hashem, then it couldn't have an impact on us. 
What happens? Yaakov goes back the night before he left the Pachim Ketanim. He left these small jugs and he went back to go retrieve them. He went back to go take them. Why did he go back to go take them? And then he finds himself alone by Yvasar Yaakov the Vado. And that whole night he's wrestling with the angel. And it's a bizarre story. We're not going to talk about it. We've covered it in the past. The end says, Yaakov, what's your name? Yaakov says, what's your name? He says, my name is Lama Zetashal Shmi. My name is, why are you asking me my name? It's a very bizarre conversation. Yaakov seems satisfied with that answer. They go on their way. What were they wrestling about? The Torah never tells us what they were wrestling about. Why was Yaakov alone? The Torah never tells us why he's alone, but he's left alone by his children. Is being alone a good thing? Is being alone a bad thing? And how do we commemorate this experience of Yaakov being injured and limping away? We don't need to get anusha, which itself is another bizarre thing. Um, these are all questions for you. A lot of homework. Since when do Jews commemorate? If you ask anybody, why do we not need to get anusha? You say, Yaakov wrestled with the angel of Esau and he won, triumphed. And how do we commemorate it? Not with a brisket, and not with a round challah dipped in honey, and not with sufkaniyot, and not with latkes, and not with matzah and maror, we commemorate it by not. It's the only Jewish holiday we commemorate a victory by not eating. It makes no sense. Since when do we commemorate something good by not eating? We commemorate good things with eating. From the looks of things, a lot of good things happening going on. Baruch Hashem. So we commemorate by eating, not by not eating. So how does it make sense that the way we commemorate this story of Yaakov triumphing is we don't eat? All good questions for you that we're not going to answer. But the Chassam Sofer is bothered. Chassam Sofer is bothered. Rav Moshe Sofer. He says, Chazal say, that Yaakov had left. We always read this parsha right around, usually the Shabbos before Hanukkah, because the Pacham Ketanim are another biblical allusion or hint to the story of Hanukkah, the, the Pach Shemim. So the small Pachim, he was back. And the Gemara concludes, Chazal concludes, that our most righteous value their property maybe even more than their body. Because they never ever would be caught coming close to stealing. Coming close to stealing. So what in the world does that mean, says the Chassam Sofer? I would think that the more righteous you are, the less you care about material things. So you left some Pachim Kitanim. Boy, you're going to leave your family to go retrieve them? You're so stingy? You're so cheap? You're so focused on your material things that you have to go back to retrieve them? Move on. Let it go. Let it go. You're not going to, you could have been up all night learning Torah. Bittal Torah to go back and get those things. You could have been all, up all night playing scrap with your family. You're going to leave your family to go get those things? What's pshat that the more righteous you are, the more you value these things. And why do you value these things? Because the more righteous would never, ever steal. What does stealing have to do with forfeiting your own property that you leave behind? So this is what the Chassam Sofer says, I think brilliantly. The Gemara says in Baruchas that a person who enjoys the pleasure of this world without making a bracha is stolen from God and fellow man. The reason we make a bracha before we eat food is I don't walk out of public without paying and I don't enjoy food without paying the Almighty for the food that He has granted me in this world. So says the Chassam Sofer, the more righteous you are, the more you realize that any property you have, it's for a holy reason and a holy purpose. Whatever you own is a vehicle and vessel for holiness. And therefore, to neglect it or to forfeit it or to unnecessarily forget it or throw it away is to steal from the Almighty. He enabled that to come into your possession and to be in your hands because it's meant to be used in a holy way. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what that holy way is. 
certain technologies. It's hard to figure out what that holy way is. But with everything you own and everything that's come into our possession, we own it not for you can't get the hana from it, personal benefit and pleasure from it. Below bracha means, but you're not directing it towards that metaphysical reality we spoke about. That you're not creating those sparks and holy energy in this world that we talked about. So whatever you own, you should think about what you own. Your car, your house, your clothing, your possessions. Whatever it is you own, it came into your possession from Hashem, not by accident and not by randomness or by chance, but it came into our possession because it's meant to be an instrument or a vehicle to advance Hashem's agenda in this world. It is an instrument or a vessel for holiness. And to neglect it, and to not use it for that very purpose, to allow it to spoil or rot or break, to throw it out when it's fine and in good shape, to forget it and leave it behind, is to steal from Hashem. It's to steal, notice the language, is not only from Hashem, you're stealing from Hashem and from the world around you, through whom, for whom you could be using that instrument to do good and to be good. And so that's why Yaakov Avinu went back for it. It's not that the more righteous you are, the more ascetic you are, the more transcendent you are over those material possessions, the less you care about things. The more righteous you are, the more you care about every penny and every dollar and every item because it can be embraced and used and transformed to achieve holy things and to pursue and advance the agenda of holiness, of holiness. So finally, we have the encounter. I told you all those questions, you're going to have to answer them. Finally, we have the encounter. After the wrestling match, Yaakov walks away. I'll, I'll tell you something else amazing about Yaakov walking away. A beautiful, beautiful pshat I saw from the Imre Noam, the Jikover. Pasuk says in Perak Lamed Gimel, Pasuk Lamed Beis. Lamed Gimel, Lamed Beis. I'm supposed to tell you in the art scroll page. Lamed Gimel. No, that's not a Pasuk. I'm sorry. Vayizrach Lo Hashemes. I had the wrong Pasuk. They finish wrestling. And Yaakov limps away. It's Perak Lamed Beis, Lamed Beis. Vayizrach lo Hashemesh kasher avaras penuel v'hutzoleya al yerecho. So Yaakov names the place where they wrestled. Kireisi elokim panim apanim atinat sel nafshi. I saw God face to face and I was spared. Vayizrach lo Hashemesh. And the sun rises. What should it say? What word there is superfluous? What word there is extra? Lo. And the sun rose for him. Um, did nobody else notice or benefit from the sun being in the sky? It should have said, Vayizrach Hashemesh. What do you mean, lo? What do you mean, Vayizrach lo Hashemesh? The sun rose for him. So there's many interpretations of Vayizrach lo, for him. One interpretation is, Bishvili never olam. A person should look around at the natural order and the magnificence of the world and say, it's for me. That sun is in the sky and there's billions on the globe who are benefiting from it, but you know what? It's there just for me. Bishvili nivra olam. God would have gone to the effort of creating the sun just for my benefit, even if there were no one else in the world. Adam nivra yechidi, bishvili nivra olam. The world is created just for me. Vayizrach lo Hashemesh. That sun rose for Yaakov. It did its duty for Yaakov. We should feel Hashem's love and we should feel the awesome responsibility of Bishvili Nivra'olam. The whole world is here just for me. And my next decision and my next behavior and my next act, the entire world is all for me. Now that's got to be offset and balanced by Anochi Afra Ve'efer, right? The one pocket I, I carry around, the little petek, 
I carry a little, little note that says, Bishvilin of Olam, the whole world's for me. And the other pocket, you carry the note that says, Anochi offer ve'efer, I'm a gornish, I'm the dust of the earth, I'm nothing. And you got to know when to pull which petak out of which pocket. Sometimes you feel low to the ground and you got to remember, Bishvilin of Olam. And other times you're flying high and you think the whole world's here for me, I'm the center of the universe. You too will be warm food at the end of the day. So some say lo means that we need to live our lives and say lo, Hashem created all this, it's for me, it's for me. Have you ever been outside when there's a dark sky and you've really seen the stars and you look up and there are billions, not millions, billions of stars, you understand the number, the magnitude, it's mind boggling. In Sitter Snippets, we're going to get up to it tonight or tomorrow night. We're up to the second Hallelujah in Sitter Snippets. If you don't subscribe, this doesn't cost you anything. Everything else we sell, you cost you something. Grove cards, Tomchei Shabbat, free. Sitter Snippets, absolutely free. So we're up to the second Hallelujah. And that possible, God counts the stars. You can't count the stars. Several summers ago, I was in Montana. I had the privilege of speaking on a great trip of rustic elegance. The summer will be in Yellowstone, Jackson Hole. So late at night, 1 a.m., Yitzhi Kesak, my dear friend, a member here at BRS who runs the trip, who knows nature like no one I know, says, wait up till the middle of the night. I promise it'll be worth it. Takes a few of us in his car. We drive back up into Glacial National Park. Windy roads, not lit up because it's at night. The park might have technically even been closed. I hope that they're not listening from Glacial National Park right now. And we drive to the top. And we lie down on the ground next to the car and we look up and I've never seen anything like this in my life. I tried as hard as I could to get a picture of it. It's impossible to take a picture of it. And I want you to know there's a blessing of that because some things are meant to just be experienced and not to be distracted by the effort to try to take a picture so other people can see. It was, I've never seen, billions of stuff. I've never seen anything in my life. There's no artificial light where you are on the top of Glacier National Park in Montana. And when you see that sky, you've never seen anything like it. So I'm looking, I can't even begin to count one inch of the stars that I'm seeing, but God knows exactly the count, and each one has its own name. Hashem has a personal relationship with each and with every star. So Vayizrach lo Hashem, lying there, he's supposed to look up and say, that star was created for me, that one's for me, that one's for me, that one's for me. All those billions of stars and the billions of galaxies and the whole universe, which is beyond our comprehension and beyond our access and beyond our study, it's all there just for me. Vayizrach lo Hashemesh, it was all for Yaakov. Others interpret Vayizrach lo Hashemesh means that just like when the sun set, the introduction of the wrestling match is that the Kibo Hashemesh, the sun had set. The sun set, and now Vayizrach lo Hashemesh, the sun rises. The sun rises. The Shemish Shmuel is a very beautiful Lashem. The Sachot Shavarebbe, the same Shemish Shmuel, Shmuel Bornstein. 1855 to 1926, we studied Sachachov in the people of the book. We went through the history of the Shemi Shmuel, Sachachov Rebbe. So he writes here, There'll be a time that Jews are going through pogroms and expulsions in Inquisition and the Crusades and the Holocaust. We're going to limp away. We're going to limp away injured. We're going to limp away with loss and casualty. We need to know that even if we walk away, we're walking away. Even if we're limping away, we're walking away. 
And no matter what history, no matter what destiny throws our way, no matter what our enemies try, and they have been successful, and they will be successful, and that's a scary thought. But we need to have the confidence and the knowledge, and the Shem Yishmuel says, that is the essence of this story. Yaakov wrestling with the Esav, the Sarash al Esav, is to tell us that sometimes we will walk away limping, but we will walk away. This is what he writes in the beginning of the 19th century. This gives us chizik in our time. That the world is chaotic for the Jews, spiritually and physically. We're threatened spiritually, assimilation, intermarriage, and we're threatened physically, the rise of anti-Semitism and of possible wars and unsafe for Jews in the world. Don't give up hope. Don't despair, says the Sochachavar. The story of Yaakov should inspire and motivate us to remember that what? We will walk away. We will triumph. We will endure. We will persevere. Even if it's with a limp. Even if it's with a limp. What the last generation survived and what today we see, thank God, enormous families born from the few who survived, who limped away, but who yet we are not only walking, in many ways we are running. But I'll tell you one last thing, even though I had 4,000 more things to tell you. Oh, there were so many more things to tell you. Vayizrach lo Hashemesh, the Noam, the Jikavar says in Nifepshat. He says, Vayizrach lo Hashemesh, if you look at the Pasuk, what was the Pasuk? Vayizrach lo Hashemesh, the sun, Kasha'avaris Penuel, Vutzolea al Yerecho. So the sun rises for him, and he was limping on his hip. He says, you know, when the sun rose, he was able to see his injury. And you know, 95% of healing is seeing your injury. And that's why it's Vayizrach lo Hashemesh. How did the sun rise for him when he knew what was wrong? When you don't know anything's wrong, that's when you're at your greatest risk. You know, when, when the kid complains they don't feel well, and they constantly don't feel well, and you go to the doctor, the doctor says, everything looks fine. And a week later, they still don't feel well. It's a virus, everything's fine. And by the third week, they say, oh, Turns out it's an ear infection. You say, Baruch Hashem! Because now I can give an antibiotic. I know what was wrong. It can be treated. And that's the best news I heard all day. That's when they say, I don't know what's wrong. That's the worst news. Virus. Virus is the worst news. Worst news. Virus translates loosely to, we have no idea what this is and we have no idea to make it better and good luck to you. That's what virus loosely translates to. With all apologies to my doctor friends. So when they say ear infection, it's the best news. Strep, oh, Baruch Hashem, strep throat. When you know what's wrong, you can treat it and make it better. It says the Jik of Yisrach, lo Hashemesh. And now, because he shone the light, because he can see what's wrong, now it can be healed, now it can be treated. We're worse off and we're most in danger when we don't even know what is, what is wrong. I, I didn't touch 80% of what I wanted to tell you. But... Baruch Hashem, we'll read Pashas Vayishlach next year. Amir Tashem and good health together. Have a great, great day.